Welcome to OncoPharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice at the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy and sporting sponsor of this podcast. I am recording this on March 26th, 2020 from my dining room. Uh, my two uh, children are upstairs asleep and my wife is working uh, in the bedroom. It is a very, very strange and scary time here in America. Um, and I have uh, many thoughts, as many of us do, about what's happening right now. And I will, um, I'm not sure that this is the place to share that. But to be honest with you, I kind of just need to talk. And um, uh, this is almost like talk therapy. But we'll save that for the end of the podcast. So those of you who don't want to hear uh, my thoughts on, on COVID life, uh, don't have to subject yourselves to that. But what I wanted to talk about today uh, was just, you know, basic. We're returning to the uh, you know, our foundations in Oncopharm. So we're going to talk about bleomycin, uh, also known as bleo or uh, blenoxane. Uh, and if you go back from a history standpoint, the first PubMed mention you'll find of bleomycin is in 1965. So let's go in our way back machine to 1965. President uh, inaugurated that year was LBJ. Uh, the first American combat troops arrived in Vietnam in 1965. There were troops there long before going back to the Eisenhower and Kennedy administration, but they were advisors. And uh, yes, I'm using air quotes. Uh, the Bloody Sunday happened in Selma, Alabama, where uh, civil rights protesters and police uh, had, a, had a standoff uh, that resulted in uh, lots of blood, but no deaths um, from what I uh, recall. And Charlie Brown Christmas premiered in 1965. So just looking at that snapshot of 1965 um, was a, a fairly momentous, um, not momentous, but uh, it was a notable year in American history. Um, and that's the first time that we heard bleomycin, um, not heard it, it was, it was uh, I guess, published um, in PubMed. Um, it was discovered um, in a Japanese coal mine, or outside a Japanese coal mine. It's an anti-tumor antibiotic that's produced by bacteria Streptomyces verticillus, uh, and the bleomycin that we know actually exists as bleomycin A2 and bleomycin B2 uh, together. And it was FDA approved here in this country uh, in 1973. Um, as far as how it works, so bleomycin is a pretty large molecule. If you look at its structure, it kind of looks like um, a fancy fish hook that has hooks going in opposite directions, one being slightly larger than the other. Uh, and it binds to DNA and in the presence of oxygen, which will be important later, and some sort of iron-like metal, it produces oxidative reactive species or free radicals that then lead to both double and single strand DNA breaks. That then leads to G2 arrest. Um, I mentioned uh, that it's a very large molecule, and for that reason, it does not cross the blood-brain barrier, so there's no CNS uh, penetration. It's primarily renally eliminated, so two-thirds of the drug is eliminated renally. Uh, and if you look in the dose adjustments for real dysfunction, uh, there's a pretty high bar to start to reduce the dose, and then it's like every 10 or 15 mils you go down in GFR, uh, the dose changes. So it's got the most gradation of doses for renal dysfunction of any drug that I've seen. It's also degraded by an enzyme called bleomycin hydrolase. Now that enzyme is not as present in as much of a concentration in two places in the body that we know of, the lungs and the skin. And that'll be important too when we look at the toxicities of bleomycin. So where do we use bleo? Um, primarily, if you see bleomycin used uh, today, 
it's going to be used with curative intent because it's used for Hodgkin's disease and testicular cancer. And it's somewhat interesting that these are two diseases. Um, I think of Hodgkin's as a hematology. Um, hematologic malignancy, but if you go back to, to Vincent DeVita and hear him talk about it at the NIH in the early days of multi-agent chemo, it was in the solid tumor realm. Hodgkin's patients were on the solid tumor service. So here we have two, let's say, solid tumors in Hodgkin's lymphoma and testicular cancer that, that are really exquisitely curable with multi-agent chemotherapy, and bleomycin is a part of both of those uh, treatments. Uh, for Hodgkin's, whether it's ABVD or BACOP, and then testicular or germ cell tumors, which can also be in the ovary, um, as part of the EP or BEP regimen. Uh, you could also see it used, um, injected into the uh, pleural space for people with uh, malignant pleural effusions as a sclerosing agent to help prevent um, frequent uh, refilling of pleural effusions with fluid. From a dosing standpoint, you know, the, the most common doses you would see would be 10 units per meter squared, like in Hodgkin's, as part of ABVD, uh, every two weeks for one cycle, day one and day 15 of a 28-day cycle. Uh, and then there's 30 units per dose, so a, a fixed dose of 30 units in uh, the BEP regimen. Uh, as far as toxicities, what I'm not going to talk about is myelosuppression, which is, uh, which is great. And the reason that's great is so many other of these drugs cause myelosuppression. So you think of ABVD, the venblastine, the doxorubicin, the decarbazine, profoundly myelosuppressive. Bleo is not. If bleomycin was myelosuppressive, it could not be part of ABVD, most likely. Think of BEP, uh, the bleo, not myelosuppressive. The cisplatin, not you know minimally myelosuppressive, we would say, but 100 milligrams per meter squared of atopicide times five days, that's very myelosuppressive. So adding a drug that's not myelosuppressive is one of... Um, uh, really illustrates one of the tenets of multi-agent chemo or combination chemo, which is to use drugs that do not have overlapping toxicity profiles. And bleo is kind of one of its kind in its toxicity profile, not causing myelosuppression. And of course, if you're listening to this, you already know about the pulmonary toxicity. Uh, and this could progress to, to pulmonary fibrosis. That is the big concern will often prevent, present as uh, initially just a, like a dry cough. Uh, if you do an x-ray, you'll see some um, basal or infiltrates, and that then can progress to full-blown full pulmonary fibrosis. And because of that concern, we want to get baseline PFTs. Uh, and what we're looking for in these PFTs is the diffusion, diffusion capacity of carbon monoxide, or DLCO, uh, and usually that will be normalized to hemoglobin as well. Uh, and just to give you an example of kind of what you're looking for for a baseline threshold, um, if you look at, uh, say, a recent Hodgkin's paper, so Echelon 1, which was um, ABVD versus uh, Brintuxmab, the dotin in place of bleomycin, the inclusion criteria was basically a diffusion capacity that was um, uh, at least 75% of expected for, your, uh, for that patient. So if it's less than 25% of that, that would be an exclusion criteria for study and probably a good reason to reevaluate re whether that patient should be on bleomycin. There are um, some differing opinions on when to check PFTs throughout treatment. So um, before every cycle has been suggested by uh, experts, say in Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, and in several review articles, the package insert says to check monthly. Uh, and then if you see a decrease in DLCO from baseline of, say, 20 percent in some places to 30 or 35 percent in other places, uh, then you should stop bleomycin because you might be on your way to that permanent pulmonary fibrosis. Uh, risk factors for pulmonary fibrosis uh, include uh, increased age, 
and a decreased renal function, which may be the same thing, or this you know might be covariates that move in the same direction uh, as you as your age increases, your renal function goes down, for example. And then a cumulative lifetime dose of more than 300 units. Now, not units per meter squared, but 300 units. So this is a drug similar to our anthracyclines that has a cumulative lifetime dose limit, and above that limit, you have a much higher risk of that toxicity. Of course, heart failure, cardiomyopathy with anthracyclines, pulmonary fibrosis with bleomycin. So to put um, some perspective on that 300 units with BEP, uh, it's 300 units per dose, and that dose is uh, day one, day eight, day 15 of a 21-day cycle. So it's basically weekly until you're done with treatment. So three cycles of BEP is 270 units of bleomycin. Um, four uh, cycles of BEP is 360 units, so you're above that. And then another risk factor is oxygen exposure. So not ambient oxygen that we breathe, but if you, say, undergo surgery and are ventilated, um, there can be a higher risk or an exacerbation of bleomycin pulmonary toxicity for those folks. So we have a, had a patient that we've referred to uh, in the past to the world's largest center, um, the best place um, for testicular cancer uh, historically. And um, based on what they said, uh, their expertise said, this patient's, you know, after you give chemo, they're going to need surgery because they have such large disease volume. They're probably going to need, uh, you know, some, some surgery afterwards. So uh, don't do the bleomycin because we don't want to risk exacerbating any pulmonary toxicity when we do the surgery because we will have to put the person on oxygen as you do uh, for that kind of a surgery, at least for this patient. Um, so those are the, you know, just to kind of summarize the pulmonary fibrosis, the risk factors, total drug. Okay, big one, total drug, and of course you'll receive more drug if you're older and have poor renal function. Uh, cumulative lifetime dose uh, above 300 units and oxygen exposure. And you're looking for in those PFTs the diffusion capacity of CO2, which will be read as DLCO2. Another one uh, that trips folks up uh, when you're looking at this are these, um, it can be called anaphylactoid, which sounds scarier than it is. Uh, so I, li I prefer idiosyncratic reactions, and this can uh, manifest as a decrease in blood pressure, altered mental status, and confusion, fever, chills, uh, wheezing that could really mimic an anaphylactic reaction, and it's most likely to happen with the first and second dose of bleomycin. So for that reason, um, it is recommended to do a test dose before the first dose in lymphoma patients. Uh, and if you want to read more into this, there's a, a really nice review article um, or a really nice publication by LAM, L-A-M, published in 2005, so it's 15 years old, uh, in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy. Um, and it seems over time, I had done some, some digging on this the last time we had a patient receive bleo, um, and it seems that the, these idiosyncratic reactions are less common now than they were in the past, and the this is my crazy un, un, uh, unverified theory, is that we use a lot more dexamethasone as a pre-medication now, uh, as anti-medic, than we did maybe in, in the 60s and 70s, uh, whether that has anything to do with it or not. Um, but one of the reasons, some, some centers may not do a test dose in anybody, because even if you do the test dose and they have a reaction, you're still going to probably give the bleo unless it's like a life-threatening reaction. Um, likewise, if you do give the test dose and it's fine, uh, they could still have a reaction after the full dose, especially uh, with the first and second go round of bleomycin. So it's not, it doesn't have a great positive predictive value or negative predictive value, I would say. Uh, and one of the leading theories is that uh, it causes a release of some pyrogen or something like that. So if you think of, say, B symptoms in Hodgkin's lymphoma patients, maybe there's something in the Hodgkin's lymphoma when bleo gets in there 
causes a fever uh, because you're killing lymphoma cells. Who knows? That's another crazy theory. This is a place for crazy theories uh, today. Uh, as far as other toxicities, uh, one that's interesting is hyperpigmentation of the skin. And let's recall the fact that bleomycin is degraded by bleomycin hydrolase, which is in lower concentrations in the lung and the skin. Uh, and if uh, that sounds familiar, that's also the case with amiodarone. There's a hydrolase that breaks down amiodarone that is in lower concentrations in the lungs and the skin. And amiodarone is another drug that can cause skin color changes and pulmonary fibrosis. And that's interesting, right? I think it's interesting. Um, uh, as far as uh, drug interactions, um, uh, you got to make it in normal saline, not D5W. D5W leads to uh, degradation or decrease in potency of bleomycin A2 and bleomycin B2. Uh, it is contraindicated with brintuximab vidotin. So when I talked about the Echelon 1 study comparing ABVD to A brintuximab vidotin, and then VD. There's no bleomycin on top of that because when bleo was studied with brintuximab, there was a much higher rate of pulmonary uh, toxicity. So those are contraindicated. And uh, you might get this question sometime on rounds if you're a trainee or maybe from a preceptor about what about uh, GCSF, what about growth factor? Does that interact with bleo? And there are, in fact, a couple. Um, uh, okay, retrospective studies suggesting that there is a higher risk of pulmonary fibrosis when bleo is given uh, with, uh, with growth factor support. Um, there are some better studies that refute that, and by and large, um, there are more studies that, sh that show, more publications showing, uh, and published data showing that there is not interaction than that there is. Um, and with publication bias, publication bias means that you're more likely to get a study published if it shows interesting results. The fact that there are more publications showing there's not interaction makes me think uh, there's probably not interaction. I'm perfectly comfortable using growth factor when we need it for the patients receiving uh, bleomycin. So that's bleomycin. So if you don't want to hear my anxiety living uh, in COVID-19 in, in March of 2020, you can stop the podcast now. Um, but just to give you an, an idea uh, where my headspace is, I'm, I'm not typically someone who's prone to anxiety, typically kind of a cool as a cucumber type of fellow. Uh, and um, I just, uh, for example, for most things uh, in life, uh, when a worry pops up, I think about a Tom Petty song that goes, most of the things I worry about never happen anyway. Um, I think the song is Walking Back to You or something. Um, and I, I kind of, that's reassuring to me, and in most times it is. Uh, now it's not. Um, and so one of the physicians I work with uh, talks to the, the medical trainees about if I've got a patient in the ICU crumping or crashing and they're on vasopressors, but I know they've got a MRSA pneumonia or urosepsis, I feel okay because I've been there. I kind of know what to expect and know what we need to do uh, to pull this patient out of it. But I'm much more scared if I've got a patient who is say somewhat stable, but I have no idea what's going on. Uh, that worries me a whole lot. And things are getting bad uh, with COVID-19 cases and deaths. And we don't know what happens next, except that it's gonna get worse. And, um, and for that reason, I feel personally um, guilty that I am uh, living a relatively comfortable COVID life right now, working from home, uh, 
and things are a mess here with two kids. My wife's working. We're all working from home and trying to manage kids and do school and trying to eat somewhat healthy and trying to exercise and not just let the kids watch like YouTube kids all day or Netflix. And um, it's hard, but it is so much easier and more comfortable than um, the nurses I know and doctors I know who uh, are running out of PPE. And um, I, I had a um, an oncology pharmacist friend send me a picture of the mask. This is the mask that I got. He was telling me this is what we were given for the foreseeable future, and this isn't an area that's been hit really hard. Um, so, you know, my heart goes out uh, to all of you in that situation. Um, and um, just for some, I guess, final perspective on, on where we are, um, and I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of resources because every I've getting so, I saw someone say this on Twitter. So many emails about COVID resources here at Hopa and ASCO and, and this Department of Health uh, locally and state and nationally and the CDC and everything. It's it's, it's overwhelming, um, but I think this this puts it into the proper perspective, the scope of what we're facing. Um, in my morning email checking, there was a, a publication for, in Lancet Oncology uh, this morning. Uh, and their French guidelines on how to uh, deal with cancer patients, specifically utilization of resources. And they place patients in three categories. Uh, so category one are the patients who should get um, uh, the most aggressive care as we could be. And those would be those who are under the age of 60 with a curative disease. And then there's a second category, which is those who are under the age of 60. And I'm summarizing here. You can you can go read it for yourself if you want to. but. Uh, second category, under the age of 60, not curative, but with a relatively good prognosis. So, so let's say bone-only uh, breast cancer or oligometastatic colon cancer, for example. And then the third category is those over the age of 60 uh, that are not curative and, and don't have uh, a great prognosis. And the fact that um, somebody put out guidelines about that uh, and is a little uh, ahead of where we are in this country um, certainly makes it hard to... Um, and it just makes it hard to think with everything. Um, but uh, I would uh, just say, uh, do what you can. Love your loved ones. Love the ones you don't love. <laughs> and uh, spend some time and, and take your mind off some things. Don't watch Contagion. <laughs> don't watch uh, Netflix. Rewatch Mad Men like I'm doing. Rewatch uh, the Wire. Uh, binge watch The Office. Uh, if you're not a Seinfeld person, get to Seinfeld. That's great. Uh, do something that makes you happy. Put on some music real loud. Um, do what you got to do to get through this. Um, but that's that's all I have for this week. We'll we'll keep doing these every week. And 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 um, if anybody out there wants to to share what they've gone through uh, at their local institution, is able to talk about it. I'd love to hear, uh, especially with regards to oncology patients and oncology pharmacy, what folks are doing, so we can try and spread the word. Uh, to get through this as best we can. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.